For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 273. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership episode 273. If it sounds a little different today, it's because I'm recording this intro in my hotel room at Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm just finishing up my first two weeks of indoctrination training back at American Airlines after being gone almost 15 years to the day when I got furloughed in 2001. had an opportunity to come back. I thought I'd see what it would be all about, so that's where I'm at. I just finished my two weeks of training, brought my equipment and gear down here to continue to post Dose of Leadership episodes trying to get back in the swing of things, but uh, the first two weeks kind of kept me out of pocket there for a while, but I'm coming to the end of my first two weeks, and um, I'll be heading back here in mid-July for my 737 training, but I'm back at American. Never thought I'd be back here, but here I am giving it a shot uh, in addition to continuing my entrepreneurial efforts with Verum Communications and Dose of Leadership, so I wanted to get an uh, episode posted this evening, and uh, I love the conversations with CEOs, and I recorded a conversation right before I left for training here in the first week of June with Michael White, and he's the former chairman and CEO of DirecTV. I love talking with CEOs of large organizations such as DirecTV because to me it seems to be the ultimate challenge. How do you communicate? How do you lead in such a large organization? It just would seem overwhelming to me. So we dive into that. How do you do that? How do you narrow it down to keep it simple and, and, and measurable? And some of my takeaways in this conversation, and it's a great one if you're interested in strategy, what it takes to lead a large organization, the mindset of a CEO. And uh, some of my takeaways include having the big picture, how to be savvy. That was one thing I haven't talked about on the show before. My takeaway is it is important to learn how to be savvy. And some people talk about, I call it politics, but Mike calls it learning how to be savvy. And that's a great way to look at it. And also having a teachable spirit. That's a good thing or takeaway I got from Michael. Constantly learning, constantly reading. Um, and it doesn't have to be any specific topic, but just constantly push yourself to learn something new. You can learn from almost any situation. And prior to him being a former chairman and CEO of DirecTV, I mean, he was a CEO of PepsiCo International. He was a chief financial officer for Frito-Lay. Uh, he worked with Avon Products. Uh, he was a manager at Bain and Company. Just a tremendous wealth of experience and knowledge, and it and uh, leadership experience. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. I know I did. Michael's a great guest. I love his humility, his intensity of will, um, and his teachable and humble spirit. A great conversation. All right. I hope you're finding some value and dose of leadership. Again, thank you for being a fan and supporter of this show. I love hearing from you. Continue to send me your emails at uh, richard at doseofleadership.com or on the contact page at doseofleadership.com. 
You can find out more about my coaching, masterminding, speaking, um, and Verum Communications all at doseofleadership.com, richardryerson.com, or verumcommunications.com. You can get in touch with me and learn more about me and my services. I'd love to hear from you if you're so inclined. All right. Enjoy this conversation with Michael White. And uh, thank you again for being a fan of Dose of Leadership. Well, Mike, what an honor to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership, my friend. Richard, delighted to be with you. I always love talking with CEOs. And as I, I know your latest stint or your previous stint uh, was DirecTV. I've been a fan and subscriber for the past uh, eight years. So uh, I'm excited to learn more about that. But before we get started with that, I'm curious about your background. How did you get started really in the world of, of, of business? Where did it start for you? Well, uh, I have a rather unusual background, I suppose. I, I mean, I grew up the oldest of eight kids, which I guess when it comes to leadership, that's where it started. Uh, <laughs> right. It was pretty uh, drummed into me by my parents, my responsibility for the younger ones and to set an example. But um, I mean, my dad was a lawyer. He actually served in the Massachusetts House of Representatives for two terms. Oh, wow. My mom was a, a, a homemaker until my dad died, and uh, at which point she went and taught math in, in school. Um, and um, so there was no business, <laughs> there was no business <laughs> background in the family. Right. On my mother's side, there were, but I, I mean, we had, I had no contact with them. So to be honest with you, as I went through college and graduate school, um, and you know, I didn't even get an MBA. I got a master's in international relations. But I, as I was kind of getting into graduate school, about that time, I thought about law school. I decided I wasn't going to go to law school. Business school back then wasn't what it is today, so I, I didn't really even know enough to think about it sure. as an alternative. And. I remember as I got into graduate school, beginning to realize that I really I wanted to do something with my international passion and 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 background. So, but I wanted to do it in business, and I I can't even tell you how or why, but that's you know that was kind of my motivation. I actually was doing a summer at the CIA studying companies doing business in Russia, wow. and and I guess that was the beginning of the of thinking about it. Even though I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't really know. I uh, didn't know much of what I was doing at the time. I was <laughs> right. kind of going, going by my instincts. Well, it's always fascinating to, when you look back at kind of the path and it's kind of like I equate it to looking at, um, you know, as you up a hill, it's never a straight path. It's a winding one, sometimes a lot of backtracks. And it's always amazing to ask people, did you envision yourself doing what you're doing now? And it's usually no. And I'm imagining it's kind of the same with you. You never kind of thought you would be CEOs, CFOs of so many large organizations when uh, you were starting out, did you? I mean, what was the dream? No, I mean, I graduated in the 70s, and yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know what a CEO was, right. or a CFO for that matter. Um, you know, and, and as you said, I mean, I think sometimes things are serendipitous. In my case, um, I had an offer from IBM to go work on the Moscow Olympics, and when the Moscow Olympics got scotched, uh, by the government, that, the offer got pulled, and I was back to the drawing board, and I ended up with offers to sell computers from either Wang or Deck. I'm glad I didn't take those jobs. <laughs> right. Uh, had an offer to trade grain with the Russians by Cargill, and I just wasn't wasn't totally sold that I wanted to go really commit to agriculture right. coming from the Northeast. And I ended up 
getting an offer to go to work for what today is Accenture. Um, back then it was Arthur Anderson's consulting. Group. Oh, right. Yeah. And I felt, you know, I don't know what I want to do, but this is a great way to learn about business. They have a great training program and it would be a great way for me to see a breadth of industries to figure out what it is I want to do in life. Yeah. So it's almost like, um, and I, I encourage my daughters to doing this. It's like, it's a, my oldest is a freshman in college, just finished her freshman year. And the biggest challenge I have talking with them is that they seem to have this mindset that, that what you decide now, there's this, this linear path to what the rest of your future is going to be. When I'm listening to you tell your story, which I think is so true, it's like, I'm just going to see what opportunities open up and be willing to accept whatever doors may open along the way and be willing to, to jump and leap. Has that kind of been your, your mantra since you started out? Yeah, I, you know, and I think probably at the core of all of it is you you got to be a lifelong learner. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was always a really good student. I mean, I will say that I know how to study. Um, I read. I'm a ferocious reader mm. and I'm curious. So I, and I've come to realize so many things change. Things that I learned in Arthur Anderson, you know, I got a CPA while I was there just in case I. I was programming in COBOL and RPG. Man, that stuff's useless today. Right. Uh, in today's world. And, but it, you know, but I, I learned a lot about business, a lot about thinking in a disciplined way. Um, and it, it really was a, a great, you know, great training ground, as was Bain and Company. I mean, I spent 10 years in consulting between um, Anderson Consulting and Bain and Company. And they, they both taught me to think in a strategic, logical, disciplined way. Yeah. Yeah. Was that the point? For me, it was kind of like, um, you know, I used the Marine Corps as a, being an officer there. It's like, I knew I was exposed to something. I couldn't articulate it. I knew it was a culture of leadership, but when I got away from it, I, I can see the lessons learned. And Arthur Anderson and Bain and company, and maybe into Avon, did you, at what point did you really start understanding the intentionality behind what it means to lead. Well, I think, you know, I suppose the first conclusion I came after I got to manager, I was a senior and then manager at Arthur Anderson. You know, you then have to decide, are you really going to commit to be a partner? Right. And it was funny. I remember coming to a conclusion that if you said to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? If you stay at Arthur Anderson, I said, Oh, I want to be partner in charge of the office. And I began to realize I really had no interest in being a line partner selling systems projects, which is what the business was. And I realized, you know, I, I'm the oldest of eight kids. I really want to lead. I want to go run a business. So that was, you know, I came to that conclusion. You know, my leadership skills were, were pretty good at Arthur Anderson, but, you know, they got better along the way. I learned a lot of, I made a lot of mistakes sure. along the way and I learned a lot. And I was always opening to open to, to try and, and learn and get better. Bain, to be honest with you, probably had less to do with real leadership because I was only at Bain for five years. I made manager, but um, Bain was all about learning to think in a, about business issues in a strategic, disciplined way. But I never forgot that I really, again, didn't I, I didn't aspire to be a Bain partner nor do I necessarily think I would have realized 
my potential there because, you know, I would say my people skills and my leadership aspect and my operational skills wouldn't have been stretched as far as they would have been running a business. So, you know, at Bain, it was always going to be like, I thought of it as a free Harvard MBA Yeah, because right. I had kids. I couldn't afford to go back to business school. And, and it was, it was, you know, so both of them in, in different ways. I mean, I had to take a step back when I went to Bain back to entry level consultant from manager at Arthur Anderson. Um, you know, Avon was, you know, at the time I knew I wanted to get out and go run something. It, it was pretty clear. Not, not that many people knew who Bain was back then. Right. And they had a CEO who was ex-General Electric who wanted, you know, somebody to run strategy for the beauty sector. And, um, and I, I, I thought, well, maybe this will be a stepping stone to a line role. Um, I went in again, I, I had a, you know, a lot of fun for five years. I mean, I got to meet Oscar de la Renta when we launched right. his perfume in Argentina and, and Mexico and traveled with him. But you know, it it wasn't. I, I came to the conclusion at Avon, uh, particularly as we bought and sold the prestige perfume businesses, that the distribution system was fundamentally flawed for developed markets. Mm. So for the Europe, Japan, and the U.S., they were going to have difficulties. And I've always believed that you can't grow careers if you can't grow the business. So I, even though I knew they had a strong position in emerging markets. Um, when they sold the perfume businesses and I was part and parcel of presenting the case to buy them and to sell them, um, I really felt it was time to, uh, to move on to a better, I would say a better opportunity, you know, and I, I got again, I worked the kind of worked the phones and worked the search community and, you know, ended up actually with a pretty good network that got me into, getting offers from Kraft, from American Express, from PepsiCo. Um, I think those were the, those were the big ones. And, and I ended up deciding to go to PepsiCo. Right. Uh, and, and that, you know, but going to PepsiCo, I ended up again having to pivot a little bit. They said, we see you as a CFO. I said, really? I, said, I never thought of myself as a CFO. They wow. said, well, you have a CPA, you have strategy and you have information systems in your background that, that, you know, looks like a CFO to us. I said, fine, but I really want to run something. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. But, you know, so I went in as a CFO and spent 10 years in various CFO roles, trying to be as good a CFO as I could. And then things happen along the way, right? I mean, you, right. you have kids, kids are in high school, you can't take an overseas assignment then. And, and it just so happened in 2000, by which time my kids were, you know, off to college that they needed somebody to run Frito-Lay Europe, Africa, Middle East. And I finally I raised my hand and said, I'll do it. Um, and I gave up the CFO role and uh, off I went to Europe. And it was a great, wow. you know, it really was a great experience. Well, again, it says to the, the fact of um, the willingness to, to completely get out of your comfort zone and try something new. I mean, even a lot of people say, well, I want to, you know, I don't want to move to such and such place, you know, but you're willing to to like you said, the timing was right with the kids uh, old enough to head off to Europe, Africa, Middle East. Where were you based out of there? Yeah, uh, I was sent to London, which is where the headquarters was, and I fairly quickly concluded that we couldn't sustain the London headquarters. 
because they were trying to do a Swiss tax structure that wasn't going to work without moving the headquarters. So I was in London for about a year, a little more than a year, and then in Geneva for uh, for two years, which was a terrific uh, experience both. I mean, London's a great city to live in. Geneva's totally different. Uh, worked on my French. Um, I got to open our first snacks plant in, in Russia, which was a dream come true for me. Um, you know, and I think as I think back on it, I, I think you're, you know, one of the things I try and coach kids on career is that you've got to start thinking about traditional um, functional kinds of um, ladders uh, and, and what kind of a hip pocket skill you develop so that you have one skill and, and whether that's marketing or finance or engineering or human resources or IT, you, you, you got to have one of those because, you know, too often I see kids who come in are kind of total generalists with no right. you know, kind of no area of specialty. And then it's hard to know how to fit into an organization um, while you're paying your dues on your way to being head of a, you know, president of a business. You know, that's a great point. I think, you know, the time to be a generalist or kind of the jack of all trades is when you've kind of reached the, um, the position that kind of demands that of you. But at some point you got to make your mark on some sort of specialty. I agree with you. I think, you I know, think it goes in waves. I mean, yeah. I have been grateful for a liberal arts undergraduate degree from Boston college my whole life, but I had to put it in the drawer for five or 10 years. Right. I mean, and I had to learn to be a really good CFO right? and, you know, and all that that entailed. And then when I became president of Europe, all of a sudden I could take it out of the drawer and it accelerated my career in many ways because of the breadth of perspective that that and my master's in international relations gave me. And I think you go in waves. I think where some skills you're going to develop are going to are going to suit you well and make you advantaged longer term, but you may need to file them in the drawer for a couple of years while you put points on the board, developing a knowledge of a specific industry and a specific function. Yeah. And at the core of it, I think is, is what you've alluded to earlier is, is having this, um, kind of inquisitive nature. I think having the, the confidence to try something new and, and the, and the ability to, to be curious about everything. I don't know if you can teach somebody to be curious. I think it's a choice. Uh, it's a bit of a choice, but it's funny, you know, <laughs> as I got older and I started to think about why is, why am I wired this way? And then I realized I used to sneak around to try and find out where my mother hid the Christmas presents. <laughs> right. You know, I, I guess I've always been a little bit curious, uh, by nature, but I do think, you know, it, it's a choice. It's, it's, it doesn't have to be that you're born with it. I think that anybody who's open and wants to learn, uh, and there are lots of ways to learn. There are more ways to learn today, Richard, than ever. Yeah, I whether agree. it's web, yeah. you know, whether it's on the web, whether it's reading books, you know, there's so many opportunities, webinars, you name it, um, that didn't exist when I was starting out. The way I learned was, you know, Anderson's training programs in particular, and and uh, and then a lot of self study along the way. If you look at it, the whole um, from Anderson to PepsiCo to direct TV, how do you get people to creatively think, uh, to, um, you know, think in that creative way? How do you encourage that within your organization? Did you intentionally promote that within 
uh, your well, career? that you know, as a CFO, um, you don't want them to be too creative in the finance function. <laughs> right. I, I used to say, don't judge me by how I'm a CFO as to how I would be as a general manager, because to be honest with you, I mean, again, I, you, you want some creativity, but not that much when it comes to adding up the numbers. Right. Um, you know, but but I will tell you that I learned watching Roger Rico. I, I think he was a master at this at PepsiCo. You know, he did all the Michael Jackson ads, and I mm -hmm. watched how Roger managed marketing. Right. And I came to realize a few things, and I, I had another boss along the way once said to me, Mike, you're you're very smart. He said, you're, you're clearly a quick study. He said, and most of the time you're right. But, you know, one of these days you're going to shut down an idea prematurely and you're going to miss a huge opportunity because you won't always be right. And I realized sometimes you have to, the higher up you go, the more you need to work at allowing certain things to take their time to develop, even if you're not sure it's a great idea. Now, there's always a time as CEO to say, no, we're not going that way. But I tried to be very careful about that. I think that you know, if you want to encourage creativity and innovation, I mean, we, when I took over as the head of Europe, Africa, Middle East, so this is my first general manager job after being 10 years in finance. And as you know, finance people have a tendency to get a reputation as Dr. No. Right. I went out of my way to start a whole new thing, which was once a year, we called it Foundations for Growth. I put together almost like a trade show where we had all of the new snacks products from around the world on display. We had R&D doing seminars. I, in, in fact, facilitated a session where I said, okay, what did you see and take away from this that you're going to build into your strategic plan to make sure that it wasn't just kind of a, oh, this is interesting kind of a trade show, that it was actually actionable. And I think that that helped, I think, be clear to folks that we wanted innovation and I think, second, you have to have a little walking around money, Richard. You sure. have to kind of have a little bit of money that doesn't have to have an ROI on it. I mean, people yeah. used to be shocked when I would say, this is, uh, no, I'm sorry, this is learning. I mean, at DirecTV, we started a Hispanic, um, I mean, think of it as a Hispanic Netflix. Yeah. And it didn't do very well, but I didn't care. I said, this is learning. And we need to learn about that business model. And I'm willing to fund it. I don't care what the ROI is or isn't. Well, that's refreshing. How much pushback do you get from a board or, or other detractors from that? I mean, I would imagine some people might, at least the, the number crunchers would say, ah, be careful about that walking around money. Well, I, I think, I do think that, um, look, I, I especially in today's slow growth economy, you better be making some bets. Yeah. But you also have to be realistic. I think it was what Casey Kasem, who is closes radio show, where he's doing the top uh, the top twenty or whatever, and he'd say, you know, keep your feet on the ground, but keep reaching for the stars. Or right. Something exactly. Like that. I always felt that the best CEOs do both. You have to deliver the short term results. Now you've got to set your goals appropriately, but you got to deliver sustainable short term results to to do the long term stuff. But if you don't do the long-term stuff, you won't have a long-term. So, right. you know, I, I I do think it's a both and, and I think that you have to do both. And if you can't do them both, then you're not going to be very successful as a CEO. 
I can, you know, you've worked for such large organizations and institutions really. And it, to me, it seems like the big challenge would be, and we talk a little bit about inspiration and, but communications just got to be a, a bear. And, um, how do you do that? How did you deal with that? How did you make sure that you were hearing from what, what was really going on? And you know, I was, a, it took me a while to learn that, you know, actually the higher up you go, the harder you have to work to, yeah, for to sure. find ways to listen. I had a terrific, I mean, I had a secretary who could read people like the back of her hand Wow. and she, you know, I had one executive come out of my office and she said, did he do such and such and such and such? I said, yeah, he did. And I could tell she already knew she'd pegged him for what his strengths were and what his, what his uh, opportunities were, shall we say. But, but it isn't just that. I think you need to have a whole array of ways to learn. I mean, when I was at Frito-Lay, my brother, I was CFO in Dallas and my brother, you know, he needed a job. So I got him a job as an extra salesperson in Massachusetts. I was down in Dallas and I'll never forget him telling me, Hey, I got to get the displays built this week. I said, why? This isn't the promotion period. He said, you don't understand. He said, the welfare checks come out on Thursday. We got to have all our displays built by Wednesday. And I began to realize, you know, there's a lot you can learn from the front line. Mm -hmm. And so I would spend a lot of time in plants, on routes, in stores. Same thing at DirecTV. We did Undercover Boss. Oh, that's different, right. Yeah. Different approach. But it was you've got to get in touch with folks that don't walk in your shoes and I think, first of all, it makes you a better leader because it makes you more empathetic for what they have to deal with day in and day out. And second, you get, you know, sources to hear. At DirecTV, I had a very easy email address, mike.white at directtv.com, and I knew it was easy. And most other folks in the media space change their to a bunch of numbers or whatever because they don't want, you know, people emailing them. Well, I much as it was sometimes frustrating. I felt it was the best source I would have to listen to what customers were saying that were upset. Um, we had an office of, of the president for customer care. And so that was a source of, of listening to what the customers were saying. Um, but I do think you have to work at it and you have to find different, different ways to kind of know what's really going on out there. Um, I used to go to the, the Consumer Electronics Show with my head of R and uh, my head of I, uh, engineering every year, and we just walked the floor together, sure. talking to suppliers and customers. So you know you, but I think as busy as you get with scheduled meetings and everything else, if you don't force it into your calendar, it won't happen. Well, that's what I'm thinking. The intentionality behind it—it's simple in theory of what you have to do. It's just finding the time. It's just it's making sure that you intentionally, you know, walk the floor essentially. I mean, I brought I brought my management team up to Silicon Valley, and we put on a three day visit to a whole pile of you know a big data company. I think we went to see Hadoop. I mean, we had a whole bunch of different things because we were traditionally not that wired in in Silicon Valley. And at Directv, I felt we needed to be. So you know, you do have to think about that, and then reading. I mean, I, I'm a voracious reader to see what's changing because everything's changing so fast out there. Trying to stay current um, and, and and able to adapt to that change, I think, is critical in today's world. How do you prioritize? I just can imagine. You know, there's so many things that are uh, grasping for your attention. How do you prioritize? I mean, you only have a, a 10 pound bag, and you got thousand pounds laying around it. How do you determine what goes in that bag? You know, 
I think it starts with, first of all, knowing what are the subjects you care about. I used to say, you know, I think it was Scott Pelley from CBS News was at a New England Patriots game with me in, in Robert Kraft's suite. And, and he, he had just taken the job over from uh, Katie Couric. Right. And he said to me, gosh, I've never managed a news organization of 300 people. Do you have any advice? I said, yeah, yeah, not a lot because I don't know anything about the news business. But the one thing I know is you're the new sheriff in town. And as the new, and I also know your style is different than Katie Couric's. So start by telling them, you know, what are the subjects you're going to grade them on and how do you get an A? You know, I mean, and I think any new leader really needs to make that clear. And in my case, it was what's the strategic change, transformational change agenda? Second, what are your operational priorities to deliver the goods for the quarter and for the year? Third, what are you doing on talent and teamwork? Um, you know, and then fourth, sometimes self-development might be a, a list of things. But And I would sit down, you know, at the beginning of the year with the board and lay out my goals for the year. Um, and I would give them a self-assessment at the end of the year. Um, we had other processes that would help us, you know, figure out priorities. So, uh, you know, the board helps you. I mean, you, you go into a board meeting and we used to have an executive session to kick it off. And I would always come in with those buckets and, okay, as it relates to strategic transformational change, here's what's going on. Here are the top three things I'm watching. As it relates to kind of the operating rhythm of the company, here's what's happening. As it relates to talent and teamwork, here are the issues that we're wrestling with, whether it's succession planning for something or, or what have you. It seems to me, if I was in your position, because I've never been in that role, but it, having the right four or five people around me that um, you could trust, that you could, you know we're going to take action, that we're going to ask for forgiveness instead of permission, they weren't going to be bogging you down with all that, they were going to make decisions without your, you know, based on your intent to me, that seemed like that's the only way that you could successfully run such a large organization. Oh, there's no question that nobody, you know, I used to say at DirecTV, we're all interdependent because just for one thing, everything's wired together through IT. Sure. And no one, I mean, I think it's one of the challenges of, of folks that folks have today is everything's so complicated that you can't know everything. I mean, you can't know you know, I was at a dentist today. Okay, you got to put a cap on a tooth. I don't know how he does that. Or, or if you're thinking about baseball, are you a short reliever, a long reliever, a knuckleball? Specialization is everywhere. If you've got a doctor, you don't want a, right. you know, an obstetrician operating on your heart. I mean, right. it, it's, and so you need a diverse set of voices and diversity in terms of skills, in terms of style, in terms of, I would say everything from gender to international, you name it. It's back to your, it's back to the point we're making earlier. I think you need a really broad network and a diverse network. So right. who do you listen to? And as my mother would say to me, how do you know when to accept what they're telling you? When do you park it for further evidence? Um, and when do you throw it out? <laughs> right. Okay. And, and I think that's a skill you develop over time. And I, I would often kind of, I think sometimes people might get frustrated because I would listen and, and I'm, they might, because silence might, they might, you know, think I'm saying yes. Well, no, I might just be thinking about it. Right. And so you got to spend a lot of time 
um, communicating, as you said, and I, I think being open and listening. Uh, but you need a diverse team, and especially at a direct TV. I had a world-class head of sales and marketing, a world-class head of programming negotiations, a world-class head of operations, a world-class CFO, and an absolute world-class general counsel was also probably my closest uh, advisor, uh, a world-class HR guy. I mean, and all of them knew their stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then I think back to your question about priorities, you know, you, you, you tend to have some instincts, but I would also say, all right, tell me what your priorities are for the year. And we would spend a bit of time in January, February, and then we'd spend time in June going, you know, what's changed? Do we need to change the priorities or whatever? Yeah. Um, and I, I think the other thing, Richard, is sometimes the most important decisions you make are what not to do, not just what to do. Oh yeah. Very good. I mean, yeah, I, I was, I was encouraged by my team to, to look at a large acquisition in Brazil. And, and I wasn't, I, you know, my instincts were it wasn't um, probably the right thing to do, but my instincts were that way for more because I thought it was too much money. Um, but finally, I went down to Brazil and spent three days with the business. And I, the funny thing was I came away saying to the team, wow, I'm incredibly impressed with their general manager and with what they've built and with their business. But I'm now absolutely clear I have no interest in buying it. <laughs> and, and it was because it didn't fit the strategy. And it had some strategic blind spots that I didn't know how they might turn out. Well, it, it turns out um, I made the judgment when they, they said, well, why don't you just lower the price? I mean, let's offer them less. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. It doesn't fit. Uh, and it was a bet the company, it was a $10 billion bet. And even if I paid eight, six months later, the Brazilian currency crashed and everybody assumed I was a genius, except that's not why I made the decision. Right. But I made the decision for a lot of reasons, and, and in some ways it was as important that we did not do that as it was that we did pursue the merger with AT&T. That's a great point. It's, it's having that alignment and clarity about what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, if you don't have or you're not clear what the overall intent is going to be, yeah, you could chase those shiny objects that look like they have a good return, but if it doesn't fit you know, with the overall intent, then uh, yeah, you don't do it. Yeah, that would to me seem like the, be the biggest challenge, particularly in like a direct TV situation where things are changing so fast. Um, the future looks extremely volatile with all the technology and the way that the consumers. Yeah, I could easily see how I would find myself chasing a lot of shiny objects if I wasn't clear about what I was trying to accomplish. Well, you know, it, this whole subject of change, disruption. Um, I, I used to have a boss who said, Mike, you're not very good at looking around corners. And that used to frustrate me because mm -hmm. we all know looking around corners is really important as a CEO. And I think by the time I got to be CEO, I realized that actually I'm very good at looking around corners. But, you know, and I still would argue my boss was wrong, but but it's defined differently. Looking around corners is not playing Karnak the Magnificent. And right. having the answers with a crystal ball. Nobody does. Right. Maybe Steve Jobs did. But most people don't know, you know, especially with the demographic changes, with the technology changes, the globalization changes around us. You've got you to gotta point a direction. You've got to make some bets. But anybody who tells you they know exactly what it's all going to look like 10 years from now, much less even five years from now, forget it. But what you do know is there are megatrends 
you know, that you mm -hmm. can look at, you know, whether it's the aging of the population or the rise of the millennials um, or whether it's the rise of mobility and video, um, you know, almost you can look at a bunch of things that are that are going to be there. And as long as you're betting directionally with those trends and trying to anticipate the next change, um, then you're going to be good at looking around corners. Sure. And having the flexibility to pivot. If it isn't, you know, and adjust as you go on. Yeah, I absolutely. Think, yeah. Absolutely. Because I, I do think it is it's easy to say, hey, um, our business, you know, when we were at PepsiCo came under a lot of criticism for health and wellness and ignoring that would have been foolish. Right. You had to you had to take that seriously. You have to take it seriously. But having said that, it's not that easy, <laughs> given <laughs> that everybody still likes sugar and salt. Uh, and oil, and in spite of the health issues. So how you juggle those balances, uh, how you kind of ensure that you're not ignoring changes that are going on around you, but you're also not necessarily betting the company unless you're 100% sure that you got the right answer. Sure. And that's rare. So I'm a big believer that you make some, you place some bets, you monitor them, uh, you make, you, you, you be clear about how much, money you're going to give them for how long and what you need to see to continue to fund it. And then to your point, you, you know when to shut stuff off because it's just not working. Right. It's smart risk. I mean, that's what you're talking about. I mean, it's, you have to have smart, smart risk knowing that you're never going to have, you know, the full, the perfect plan. That's a myth, you know, get 75% of the information, pull the trigger and see what happens. You know, well, if you don't take a risk, you're never going to grow your no. business much less stay, stay competitive long-term. On the other hand, if you don't do it smartly, you know, you, you can get yourself in a world of trouble trying to swing for the fences for transformational change Yeah. without realizing that sometimes it's the small incremental changes and a few strategic bets. And sometimes you won't even know which ones are going to pay out hugely yeah. um, in ways you, you didn't anticipate. How how rapid did things change in the six years you you were at Directv? Oh, totally. I mean, I would say when my predecessor there, last I looked, so the five years before I got there, content costs, which is sixty percent of your cost, were growing four or five percent a year. Not a problem. My five years, they were growing eight percent. In fact, as high as twenty percent, a ten percent one year. Wow. And when that's sixty percent of your cost structure, that's a problem. Yeah. The whole subject of technology drastically changed. So, you know, mobility, TV everywhere, um, a, a kind of evolving recommendation engines for your user interface. Um, I mean, my goodness, the technology change was racing ahead of us and trying to figure out how best to adapt um, our company to a more mobile world. Uh, was was a critical thing. I, I also think as the, the bill got higher and economy got tougher, customers and customer service, the whole definition of what that had to be changed as well. So, you know, in, in many ways, I mean, I remember when we were first doing a, a big project on the customer experience, we weren't even doing chat. <laughs> we, we didn't have a chat capability. <laughs> when, right. when we took 120 million phone calls a year. Well, that's wow. kind of crazy. Uh, you know, so the digital agenda in particular massively changed, um, as I would say, did the cost of sports in particular, but also the cost of, of programming and content in general. So 
it, it was funny. I was only there for about six years and, oh my goodness. I mean, I was rebooting the strategy every 18 months at most. Wow. That's incredible. But I can imagine it's a, a challenging industry and I, I don't, I know we don't know what is around the corner, but it seems like it's just, if there's something that's going to be drastically different in five years, it's this whole, the way we consume media. I yeah. Know. But I, you know, I think this is one of the things though, everybody says, well, everything's going to be a la carte yeah, on the know. internet. I don't, nah, know. I don't think so. I don't so. think so either. Okay. But I can tell you everything's going to change. Yeah. And, and I actually, as I was thinking about it, I was reading a piece on the media industry and, and it hit me that this is one of those cases where strategy is much more about, I would say, having three or four scenarios, have a worst case scenario, a best case. What would you do if, so you, you know, you, you're going to place some bets, but in some ways, I think you learn more by having a scenario that says, okay, let's assume that the millennials never sign up, never move out of the house and get their own house and have kids and want to watch Sunday football. What does that look like? <laughs> or let's assume this is a muddle through kind of a situation where it's going to be challenging, but you'll muddle through. What does that look like? And then I think as you see those different scenarios, and it's not a hundred, I mean, there's probably four or five that are really important. Um, well, then there are certain implications that come out of that. You can then decide which bets you want to place and, and how you accommodate the flexibility you'll need because you don't really know what the answer is. So I do think having, in some ways, a stress test and a scenario plan becomes an integral part of strategy, which never existed when I was at Painting Company. We didn't look at those two things. Yeah. Can you name a person? I'm always curious whose shoulders you're standing on. A person or persons who's had a tremendous impact on you as a leader, maybe a mentor. How did this person impact your life? You know, I I don't I didn't ever I never didn't think of the folks that impacted me as mentors per se, even though they were. Right. <laughs> the funny thing is I never thought of it like, oh, we have a mentor relationship. But boy, oh boy, were they great teachers. Now, sometimes they were teachers by example. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they were teachers because I was a good student and watching them. But I mean, I had such great, I mean, I've had such an amazing set of bosses that I've come into contact with from Bob Elmore at Arthur Anderson, Mitt Romney at Bain and Company, uh, Jim Preston at Avon, became CEO of Avon. Uh, at PepsiCo, Mike Jordan hired me, CFO, uh, Steve Reinemann, Indra Nui, um, Don Kendall in particular has been a very good friend and mentor. Probably the guy who I've modeled my leadership after the most is probably though Craig Weatherup, who I worked for, was a terrific leader and, and taught me so much about leadership um, when we were trying to turn around the international Pepsi business in the late 1990s. What a list. I mean, what a blessing to have been exposed to so many great individuals. I well, just, I, I forgot you know, DirecTV. You know, you got John Malone was chairman of our board when I went on the board. <laughs> John's a world-class leader. Uh, I've been blessed, I have to say. I mean, <laughs> I have a Hall of Fame set of bosses who I learned from, um, and each one taught me something different. I mean, sure. Mike Jordan's style and Roger Rico's style were very different, but they each, I got something from all of them in addition to from my parents. What advice would you give to somebody that's out there, kind of, you know, maybe they're in their 
mid stage of their career, early stages. What's the? You could. I mean, there's so many things you probably tell somebody. But what is the one critical thing you think someone should do if they're if they're interested in in leading a significant organization? Well, you know, I think you'll have to define what. First of all, you have to define clearly what you think leadership is, because once you define it, then you can kind of go learn more about each of the buckets. Sure. So I always started with you, you know, you need to keep learning about strategy first and foremost. And that means studying customers and competition, disruption, um, regulation increasingly. But, you know, make make it a habit of reading books about strategy. Mm. I would say second and I think it gets to the more personal piece. Know what your values are. In my case, my dad died when I was 27, and I was the oldest of eight kids. My youngest sister was 13. He died at 50 of cancer in six weeks. Wow. And I remember asking to do the eulogy, and I didn't think about, you know, all I knew was I'm the oldest, and I have something I, I that needs to be said on behalf of the family. I didn't know what I was going to say. I ended up writing a, and kept it reasonably short. Um, eight values, one for each of the eight kids that um, my dad had taught us. And it, it turns out, you know, I hung it on the wall, the house, every house we lived in. But to me, that became my value. You know, that's those are my values. And I think for values, you have to make it that personal. Um, I do think you should also learn a lot about yourself and how you influence other people. I mean, there's so much to learn about, you know, whether it's resilience whether it is uh, recognition, David Novak is a world-class CEO yeah, yeah, great. Uh, when it comes to recognition and, you know, how to do recognition well. Uh, I'm a big believer, though, that, you know, self-awareness, uh, you know, what are your blind spots? Get to know what you're good at, but also what your blind spots are and savviness. And, you know, I used to, at our leadership program I ran every year, I used to have Marty Selman, who's an executive coach, come in and teach folks how to be more savvy, which is don't believe everything you hear. Um, uh, you know, you have to be politically smart if you're going to influence an organization because every organization has some form of politics and it's not a bad word. It's just, you better be savvy Sure. Um, in knowing what other agendas may be out there and knowing what, what different things motivate folks. Uh, and I think they're, you know, Figuring out what those topics are that you can and should learn more about if, if you aspire to, to leadership. Um, you know, there's tons of good stuff that's been written, it's published out there on any of these fronts, but deciding to make it a priority each year to either go to a seminar, read a few books. Um, and as I said, I don't think you can ever go wrong if you're, you know, reading stuff about strategy if you're reading stuff about leadership, there's so many good books. I mean, even Bob Gates's book um, as yeah. former secretary of defense is a fabulous book. It's a great book. Yeah. On the complexity of leadership, savviness, politics, influence skills, strategy. I mean, it's all in there. And, you know, I, I just, I would say, you know, you, you can kind of be as diverse in the stuff you pick up, but you'll learn something uh, reading anything. You read Nelson Mandela's autobiography and you'll learn something about leadership. Well, I can't agree with you more. And I think the, the self-awareness piece is so critical. I love that you said that. And just 
everything that you're saying and just looking at the example that you've done, there's always that level of intentionality, that curiosity, that reading. You know, I'm a huge fan of that too, is just voraciously reading that intentionality behind all of that. And just over time, the compounding effect of all that you learn and being a sponge um, can lead to great things, both personally and professionally. And uh, that was well said. I couldn't agree with you more. Gosh, Michael, I could talk to you for hours about this stuff. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to spend the, the last 45 minutes chatting with me about well, what you've done, what you've accomplished from both the professional and personal front. What's next for you as we kind of wrap up here? What, what's next on the horizon for you? What are you looking forward to? Well, I've got seven grandchildren now, Richard, and twins that have their first birthday party next weekend. So <laughs> uh, I'm looking to that. But mostly um, I'm – I'm now at a phase of life, I'm 64, where I'm kind of adjusting to a different uh, uh, a different time in life where, you know, it, it's not get up and go to work every day, but it is how do you stay uh, active and make a difference? And I'm mentoring kids once a month uh, at the Columbia Business School. Um, I'm on a bunch of boards. I chair a nonprofit board, uh, which is the uh, Partnership for Drug-Free Kids, which teaches you about influence skills in a different way in the nonprofit land. Uh, I'm on the Boston College Board of Trustees, as well as the Kimberly Clark and Whirlpool Boards. So, you know, I think you do it in, in other ways. Um, and uh, But, you know, I still want to stay engaged and still want to try to be helpful and make a difference. I feel like I've been so fortunate with the with the the leaders that I've had the chance to work with before, uh, I mean, there's so many of them. I mentioned Wayne Calloway. I mean, just so many of them I've learned from, um, and I and I feel like I'm kind of at that point now where uh, you know it's time for me to give back philanthropically, uh, and it's time for me to spend a little more time with my family as well. Very good. Well, gosh, I'm so glad to have met you. I look forward to uh, staying in contact with you. And welcome home at Dose of Leadership always if you ever want to come back and talk and something you're passionate about. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Happy to, Richard. Take care. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. Hope you're finding some great value in Dose of Leadership. Hey, go check out my website, doseofleadership.com. Get your free access to some videos or to my free ebook. Also, check out richardryerson.com if you're interested in one-on-one coaching, group coaching, seminars, you're needing somebody to speak at your next event, I'm always available. Check out more at richardryerson.com. Let me know where you're at in your leadership journey. I'd love to hear from you. Richard at doseofleadership.com. It's a great way to get in touch with me. Find me on my Facebook page, LinkedIn, Twitter. Get in touch with me. We'll make it a great one. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money.